It's Monday, December 11th, 2017, and you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, excited to be here with my co-host Paige May. Before we dive into episode 37, we're excited to announce that we at the Lit Review Podcast now have two sponsors. This podcast is now sponsored by the Critical Studies MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu. And as always, special shout out to our first sponsor, the Arca Center for Social Justice Leadership, an initiative out of Kalamazoo College whose mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. In this episode, we'll be speaking with educator, entrepreneur, social justice activist, co-founder of the Chicago Freedom School, founder of Freedom Lifted, a small social enterprise that hosts civil rights movement tours in the Deep South, and current executive director of the Arca Center for Social Justice Leadership, Mia Henry. Mia will be talking with us about the book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible by Charles E. Cobb Jr., published in November of 2015. Hello, hello. Hey. How you doing, Monica? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. I'm, you know, eating some blueberries. Yeah, my belly's really full. I'm warm and happy and so excited because we have a very brilliant person here to talk with us today. Extraordinary, Extraordinary. person. Extraordinary. <laughs> and special. Um, so we are, we, we're talking about This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible by Charles E. Cobb, Jr. And joining us today to talk through this book is Mia Henry. Um, and I'll let you introduce yourself, but thank you so, so much for being with us today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome. Can you tell us who you are, what do you do, and why? Sure. So my name is Mia Henry, as you said, and um, I like to introduce myself first by who I come from. So I'm the daughter of Booker Terry Henry and Regina Henry, Regina Moore Henry, both from Alabama. Regina Henry was a school teacher, and uh, Booker Henry was, uh, or BT, or Terry, depending on who was calling him dad, was um, in retail. And I'm the granddaughter of Lorraine Moore, who is still living, and Robert L. Moore. And Lorraine Moore was a um, hairdresser, and she had a shop that was built out of their home that my grandfather built for her. And my grandfather was an auto mechanic, and he had his own shop that he built. And that's my maternal grandparents and my uh, paternal grandparents. Um, Jean Henry was a librarian and proud NAACP member. And um, the uh, Booker, Booker Henry Sr., if you will, was a traveling preacher. So my people are from Alabama. My people are black people from Alabama. And they are entrepreneurs and they are um, survivors. And I'm the niece of migrationists, people who left Alabama and moved to Chicago and Detroit, trying to leave the violence of the South, um, leave the fields, the cotton fields that they grew up on with my great-grandparents um, were sharecroppers in Wetumpka, Alabama. And so they moved looking for opportunity, like millions of other black people, 
um, in the 40s and 50s, only to find low-wage work, right? So in the, in the current context, right, in the context of how we describe ourselves through how we're able to pay the bills, I'm very honored and, and um, fortunate to be able to work for the Arkansas Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. Um, it is uh, part of the college, but also part of the community. And uh, we're housed in this, this beautiful building that was built specifically to do social justice work. And we have grown into a mission of doing work in education and capacity building. So we know there's many, many different ways to do social justice work, grassroots organizing, which is really highlighted in the book that we're talking about today. Um, online organizing, right, direct action, policy work, research, you know, there's so many ways to do it. Um, so we're really, really leaning in, uh, for lack of a better term, to education, public education, classes, and um, public programs that are, that are open to everyone, not just the students, not just the, the faculty, but everyone comes to everything. Um, and capacity building, what we can do to help uh, all those folks on the front lines do their work um, in a way that's basically safe, <laughs> in this very basic way, um, and um, in, the, in the most effective way possible. So we trust um, the people who are, who are doing the work to try to address some of our most salient issues today. Um, we just know that sometimes the resources aren't there to do it the way they want to, or, and they can't get to the people they want to get to, so that's what we try to do is be there for them. So that's one of my jobs. I was thinking about the other day, I was talking to uh, some students, I'm the advisor of the black student uh, organization, the BSO at the college, and uh, we have like this career thing or whatever, and I was like, I actually have four things yeah. that I do, but I didn't want to overwhelm them. I was like, you know, right, just get, you know, just worry about getting a yeah. job, I guess, right now, and then you can figure it out. Um, but, you know, I um, met Paige actually years ago when I was working at the Chicago Freedom School, and that's work um, that I'll always be proud of and that has really helped that along with being a, a high school teacher in the past is really the center of my view of the world, right? It's the way I see the world is through an, an educator's lens. I left the Freedom School so I could start a small business doing civil rights tours down south. And I really, I left that work, um, I, say, I say to start a small business, but I left the work to do the tours, mm -hmm. and then I had to figure out what, how that was going to look. Mm -hmm. And I made a decision that it would be a small business. And I'm happy about that decision because I can use the profits any way I want. <laughs> and 10% uh, of all the profits of those tours go into any kind of social movement history project. Right now, Teaching for Change gets a lot of that, um, that funding, but also if I hear of any projects, particularly ones that are happening in the places we visit, to help preserve that history. Um, and they're, they're, they're created, not like big museums that are created by big funders, but um, exhibits and, and, and things that are created by the people who live that history or by their uh, descendants, those are the things that we really like to, um, to support. Um, and also do anti-oppression trainings um, for various sectors, philanthropy, and the Public Libraries of America. I've been working with them for the past year or two just to, um, to give them some, some, some language that they can use um, instead of diversity <laughs> and inclusion, and they can really understand what that is. I do, I do the tours because I love travel, and I've taken a lot of young people on, on tours before, but um, 
we were going to like Europe or we were doing campaign tours, depending on what I was doing. But, you know, we're going everywhere except for <laughs> a place to revisit my own history, you know. And um, I, I love being able to engage in um, education, work while on the road. It's while going to the places where, where things happened. And the only reason why the churches we go to and, and the, uh, the parks that we visit and, and when we go to Alabama and Mississippi, the only reason why they are important is because of what people did there to resist, mm-hmm. right? Um, either people surviving or choosing to remember violence. And it really is one of these moments where I, I when we go on these tours, I feel like we are going and revisiting place of violence after place of violence after place of violence, right? And um, so they're heavy, and which makes me feel like they're so absolutely necessary. And then I work at Arcus because I enjoy building things and having, you know, having some ideas of what we're going to do is kind of how the Freedom School came came about. There were a lot of great ideas, actually, and a lot of incredible people, you know, Miriam and, and others who were there from the beginning. Um, but there was no, you know, uh, mortar yet to a lot of the ideas. And so um, I really appreciate the trust that was given to me with the Freedom School and, and with the Arca Center to create a mission or to and create um, programming at the least, but also um, real space um, to for people on the front lines. And so there's just a lot of flexibility and freedom and respect that I get in that, that position, then I can't, I can't emphasize enough how grateful I am for it. So I'm fortunate. So this book, it get, I, I hear about this book a lot, um, and I haven't read it yet, um, but people, it gets referred to and referenced a lot, and it's something that I know I need to read. Um, what led you to read this book, though? What, what were you, where were you at in your life? Yeah. Um, why did you pick it up? So I was really happy to see that you were asking that question. Um, so there are two stories that I would hear when I would go on the tours that um, made me start just thinking about the philosophy of nonviolence. And then we have a speaker that, we, that I use a lot on the tours when we go to Birmingham, a freedom rider. So I guess I have three stories around that. The speaker um, is, is Catherine Burks Brooks. She was a 1961 freedom rider. She went to Tennessee State University. And um, when asked about nonviolence, she would always say, some people felt like nonviolence was a way of life. I said, it was not a way of life for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, it was a tactic, but it wasn't a way of life for me. She would say that every time. And um, then just being around her and her whole personality, it made a lot of sense. She, was <laughs> she always starts t- to tell her story about who she is, about talking about resistance as a child, right? And so Catherine Burst Brooks was like, Nonviolence is a philosophy um, that I didn't necessarily subscribe to. And then when we go to Megger Evers' home, we hear the story of when Megger Evers was shot in his driveway, right, that there was a neighbor who came out and shot his gun in the air to scare off whoever was shooting Megger, right? And when I first heard that story, I was like, 
Oh, people had guns. Of course they had guns. <laughs> um, and they were using them tactically, right, to protect, to try to protect each other. In that case, we know that, unfortunately, it didn't save Megar Evers' life, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it kept him, most likely kept him from getting shot more mm -hmm. and dying instantly, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there was that story. And then... Um, in 1955, or it would be 1956, actually, after the bu Montgomery bus boycott began, which, you know, it lasted over a year, King's um, house was bombed, the parsonage. He was the, he was the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, and the parsonage was down the road a little bit, and it was, there was a bomb set, and, and it went off under the house while Coretta Scott King and their, their at that time, only child was home. He was not home. After that, he went down to get a license for a gun hmm. and was denied. Huh. And when, the, when people who were supporting the movement heard he was denied, the folks who already had gun licenses took turns guarding his house 24-7 after that. So with those stories, I knew, you know, something is up <laughs> with, with, you know, gun ownership. Um, not to mention the fact that my father had a gun and my, my um, paternal, I'm sorry, my maternal uh, grandfather, uh, uh, Bob, <laughs> he also had a gun. I knew that because I'd seen those pistols. I'd seen them myself. I knew where they kept them and everything. They told us. So, um, so there's always just this, like, oh, you know, I, I never felt like I was telling the whole truth, I guess, when I was talking about nonviolence, but I really didn't feel like I knew what it was. And then there's Charlie Cobb, who I love dearly, and I love him much more than he probably loves me or even knows me, but I don't care. If you're listening, Charlie, I love you so much, and I thank you for everything. So I'm telling you, he is an elder I truly, truly admire. I don't even feel, when I, I, I call him elder because I, his age, but when I'm around him, I don't feel like I'm around someone who... Is his, his, his age. I really don't. Have you all had a chance to meet him? No, no, we haven't. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about who he was? Because for folks who don't know, this book isn't written by someone who's removed no. from the situation, right? Like, there's someone who navigates academic spaces, but also, like, was in this. Can you tell us more? Yeah. So Charlie Cobb came up with the idea of Freedom Schools in 1964 Freedom Summer. <laughs> so I'm already his biggest man from Get, right? Um, and then um, he also, he has just stayed um, relevant. He stayed with it, you know. And he wrote another book um, called On the Road to Freedom. So I don't know if you've seen that book. But um, that was the book that I used to start the Civil Rights Tours. And it's literally a tour book through the Civil Rights South. And it has color pictures in there. And it is... Um, I can't, he goes state by state to all of the places that, that matter. So his book was the first one that I picked up, and I said, well, you know, what am I going to, where am I going to take these people? Because <laughs> I didn't really, I mean, I knew I could take them to Alabama. I knew I could take them to, like, you know, Birmingham and everything where I would, the areas where I was from, but I didn't know where else to take people, and I didn't know really anything about Mississippi at the time. So I took his book to Mississippi and drove around Mississippi for a week with his book, visiting people and then I took it on a different trip I took the book to North Carolina and visited people um, and found all the all the people that I'm connected to through those first um, those first 
uh, trips. They were, I called them scouting trips, right, when I was just starting the business. I hadn't actually taken anyone on a tour. I took a year just to think about, you know, how I wanted to do this. And um, his book led me in Mississippi to Fannie Lou Hamer's grave site. And <laughs> I remember when I got there, it's in, it's in Ruleville, Mississippi, where she was from. And it's, Fannie Lou Hamer's actually buried on land that, that she had purchased for Freedom Farm. Very few people know this about Fannie Lou Hamer in her last years, was really trying to create a farm cooperative. Mm. She understood the freedom and what, what it meant to be able to feed yourself and what that freedom meant. So, and she said that she did not want to be buried on a plantation. So uh, Charles McLaurin and others, SNCC veteran Charles McLaurin, um, Mac, made sure that she was buried on that land and not on anybody else's, right? So I went to that gravesite and I asked for permission to do the tours. You know, mm -hmm. I asked from from her in particular um, and her as a conduit uh, to to ancestors that may I do it, and if you allow me to do it, please guide me to do it right. You know, so that Charlie Cobb's work <laughs> just was the. Um, his thinking around the, the need for political education and liberatory education as a part of the three strands of Freedom Summer, which is also voter, voter registration and the creation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. He, um, to understand that political education is non-negotiable <laughs> around um, what it means to, to, to be active and to be a movement builder, that thinking, and then his actual writing has shaped me so much. Mm -hmm. So when I heard he was coming out with a new book, it didn't really matter what it was going to be about. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to check it out because it's Charlie Cobb's book. And then when I learned um, that it was about guns in the, in, in the movement and the role of guns in the movement, I felt like this was absolutely a missing piece of my, my knowledge and understandings because it's, as much research as I'd done to prepare myself for the, for the tours, I, didn't, I did not understand at all the role of of armed self-defense, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and even it's in my family, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so how, can you walk us through the book a little bit? Sure. Um, maybe give us um, some context to how does he talk about guns in this book, right? Does he frame it as a violence versus nonviolent, like, sort of framework? Like, how does he um, mm. talk about the ways that guns were used and, and, and the, the conversations that people were probably having about guns versus no guns? So I think he rejects the... Um, binary, for lack of a better word, of nonviolence and violence. I mean, his one of his central tenets is that um, armed self-defense made nonviolent movement work happen. Mm -hmm. You know, he himself, he opens the book and it's weaved throughout the book of his own experiences being protected uh, as a young 20-year-old uh, SNCC member in Mississippi by, by families there, and particularly the McDonough's, I believe. And um, again, he has this, this insider knowledge, right, <laughs> about what, um, how necessary it was for guns to be present because they were already there. So they, you know, they understood SNCC and CORE were two of the groups that were doing a lot of work in Mississippi prior to Freedom Summer, really from like 61 when Bob Moses first came to um, the Delta until 64. And when they came, they understood they were going into black communities. And those communities have been terrorized for 
centuries, <laughs> um, but certainly for um, most of the 20th century and the many decades of the, of the 20th century, and really been intimidated out of being able to exercise any of their rights afforded to them by the Constitution. So they had guns to put food on the table, one, just hunting, right, rifles and things, and they also had assault weapons to protect themselves from intruders that, um, that ostensibly could be any, of any color, but particularly white people who may take revenge on them for showing not just, not huge strides like registering to vote, but just even um, acting uppity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, Charlie Cobb does a great job, in my opinion, of describing how you could be nonviolent in the white sphere, if you will. So if you're in the, in which is really the public sphere at that time, in the courthouse or you're going into places that are dominated by white power, then nonviolence is the, the strongest way. It's the, it's the most effective way to show one's resilience, right, and, and strength. But in your own house, <laughs> in your own neighborhoods, right, and everything, you had the right to protect yourself and your family. And is absolutely um, not just necessary, but almost respected by white people that one would have a gun. Because, you know, in this country, the Second Amendment mm -hmm. <laughs> is very much uh, revered. And that is not just by white people, right? It's become that way. We, we see it that way, I think, often, mo most recently, right, because it's so associated with um, right-wing conservative um, rights. But really, um, for most of this country's history, this right to bear arms was one that was shared by everyone. And, um, and particularly after the Civil War, if they didn't have any other rights, people had the right to, to their guns, you know? So it was very rare that even it would be questioned that someone would have a gun to protect themselves and their family. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can kind of break down for us, like not the word nonviolent gets thrown around all the time and already yeah. you've used it in ways that I think challenge how the sort of the normative way that it might be talked about. When I think nonviolence, um, I think that means if you are at a protest and the police hit you, you don't hit back. Or if you are at, if you are mm -hmm. doing an action and a white supremacist comes up and hits you, you don't hit back. That's like what comes, uh, my, what like my mind conjures. Um, I, I also specifically think it's about strategy. It's 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 like you were saying earlier. It's a t it's a tactic. It's something that. Um, but then you're saying that, I mean, there's different spheres of it, right? There's like in your home versus like when you're out and yeah, where you can't, you, they have bigger guns, they have the law and there's yeah. all these things. So anyway, so can you, but can you help us sort of, what does that, what is nonviolence? Um, what is it not maybe is even a better question. Hmm. Um, well, I think you actually described it tactically um, well, because again, we're talking about nonviolence in direct action, mm -hmm. not nonviolence in movement work all, you know, overall. So there's so many different ways that we move things forward. And he makes a distinction throughout the book between direct action and community organizing. Okay. So what SNCC and CORE are doing in Mississippi in particular are, is organizing the community. They're walking from house to house, from farm to farm, right? Mm -hmm. They're living with the people, um, with residents from Mississippi, right? They're acutely aware that they get to go home afterwards right mm -hmm. and those residents have to stay so not only so they he often talk he talks about the, the nonviolent um 
the philosophy of nonviolence or the subject of nonviolence hardly even comes up right. when, when they're spending time with these families, right? Um, it's about black resistance to white supremacy. And I think the, the most salient point he makes is that you need to do that in multiple ways. And sometimes nonviolence is the best way to do that, particularly in direct action outside of the home, in places that are already um, dominated by white power structures. And community organizing does not require nonviolence at all. And it would actually be silly at best and disrespectful, you know, at worst, to, to require the people that you're organizing to give up their guns, right? Um, he said that he says at one point someone tried to to use a new term called unviolent. I didn't really, I, I don't think it caught on, period, and it hasn't really <laughs> caught on for me. <laughs> but I understood what he was getting at, right? He's yeah. getting at there's something else in here, um, and and that nonviolence in and of itself it never has really taken off <laughs> as as a as a viable philosophy to be applied to to movement work overall. But in in particular situations, particularly direct action, right? Um, the nonviolent has shown nonviolence in application to those actions has shown to be effective. Um, but that's not the only way we do movement work. Yeah. Does so that make sense? It does. That does. Thank you. And I think we so we are, we've asked these like specific questions. I want to give you space to just generally talk about the book. Um, if, if you want it. <laughs> yeah. But just yeah. like, what are the points he's making? I, I think we, yeah. What other history yeah. do you think is important to lift up that's shared in the book? So um, I just want to go back for a second because also I'm really, the way I got this book is that I bought it when I met Charlie Cobb. Oh, yeah. We never finished that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to go on with my fan. Uh, talk about Charlie Cobb. This will be my last thing. But you see, he signed it. And I, I actually never even care about getting books signed. But because I, I, I was able to spend some time with him, right, when I got the book, I had to have him sign it, you know. Um, but it was at the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer in, in Jackson, Mississippi, where I finally purchased the book and um, had a chance to really talk with Charlie Cobb about it. And, again, one of the things that I, I love about him is that he is um, – you know, he gives a shout out to like Dream Defenders and and um, Latinx organizers and everyone. And at the end of the book, he is really deeply thoughtful about the history he's a part of and how that's been, um, in the case of nonviolence, been romanticized. Right? He's super honest about his own wavering around the nonviolent uh, philosophy as applied to all aspects of being an activist for himself and. He is um, very, very respectful of young people um, leading struggles today. You know, um, so I just wanted to say that. I don't, this is not what you asked me, but I just, <laughs> I feel like I just want to support, right? Um, have people read the book just to, 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 first of all, get this firsthand account of, of um, what it meant to do grassroots organizing down south at this time. And also just uh, give him his credit for insisting on, on making his experience relevant and learning from, from new generations. But I use, now I have this resistance and solidarity 
um, module to the trainings where it helps people understand what resistance looks like and what the difference is between resistance and solidarity. And I took the resistance uh, framework from an exhibit that's at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel where King was killed. And that when you go into that, have you all been to that museum? No. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can go. You don't have to go with me. I will just, you decide to go, and I will tell you where you go and what to look for and stuff. The, but in this museum, is absolutely, a, completely a necessary stop on anybody's civil rights tour, anybody's trip to Memphis, period. They, since they renovated it about three or four years ago, you have um, the waiting area. Um, and before you go into a film, and then after the film, that's when you actually start the exhibit. And you start the exhibit in uh, the 30s and 40s in, the, in Jim Crow South, right? And then it goes pretty much chronologically to the Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Freedom Rides. It goes chronologically up until the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike in 68. Before you start the exhibit, you have a film about the Civil War and Reconstruction. And before you go into the film, you have this waiting area where you're literally like kind of standing on the Atlantic um, slave trade routes, right? You're standing on a piece of a globe with the routes. And there are different artifacts and, and snippets about um, many of the areas and cultures where people were taken and enslaved and eventually enslaved. And what life may have been like for some people who were enslaved, right? As much as you can put in a waiting area. On the wall, there's this um, description of how people who were enslaved resisted. And there were there's six different ways that they list. So they list um, escape, so we know the Underground Railroad, um, and other ways of just getting out of um, the oppressive conditions that you're in physically. They have um, revolt. So we know about slave revolts, right, both on ships and on plantations. Defiance, which I understand is to just refusal to be defined by our oppressors, right? And uh, petition and protest, which we understand to be petition and protest during slavery, in slave times. This could be your Frederick Douglass or the people who are working as abolitionists, um, all of the ways that their people are actually challenging uh, laws and making demands. Achievement and success, which I'd never seen you know, in a resistance framework before. <laughs> and I, I understand that. Even in, in, in this book, we understand that people, black people owning farms <laughs> helped provide land for people to, to live on and to resist on and to camp when they were going from Selma to Montgomery. I mean, these are black owned farms that are they're giving their, their land up for the movement, right? When I go back to thinking about um, my, my grandfather, the church that they belonged to, uh, Galilee Baptist Church was a, was a member of the SCLC, right? Um, and my grandfather, my mother, mother's side of the family was very active. My mother desegregated her, her junior high school, Litchfield High School, in, in 1966. They were very, very active in the movement. She was trained in Project C, C standing for confrontation. So, um, by the fact that my grandfather owned his own um, auto mechanic shop and my grandmother owned her own salon or a beauty shop is what they called it, they had some economic independence and they were able to really give a lot of money to the churches that were supporting the SELC 
um, fights. So this, this achievement success is important, right? <laughs> People who have some kind of means, and I'm, you know, of course, achievement success should not just be economic, but we recognize that the barbers, the auto mechanics, the people who own their own business are relatively independent, did not re rely on white people for their money, had um, a lot to offer the movement, right? So achievement success is there, and then finally community building, right? And I, I, I extend that to be political education and visioning. <laughs> so all the things that we need um, when we are loving on each other, right? The healing spaces, all of the community building. And I often f feel like I'm coming from that strand of resistance, right? The community building um, path is the one that I have happily taken. Um, but the point, really, with all of it is that all of it is needed to end slavery. <laughs> all of it. Mm -hmm. And today, we often will have the petition and protest people saying that achievement success people are sellouts and the achievement success people are talking about the revolt folks are too militant and everybody thinks the community building people are too soft. You know, it's just <laughs> really not useful for us to understand wh how all of this is necessary, right? All of it is necessary. We, and, and going back to the third one I talked about, defiance, what it means to change our mindset, to me, this is the core of this book. This book is about black defiance. And they started to say, you can kill us, you know, <laughs> you can come after us, you can throw us off the plantation as, um, as um, Fannie Lou Hamer would say, right? Because they still were referring in the 60s to the places where people were living as sharecroppers as plantations, right? You can throw us off the plantation, you can threaten us and all of this. We're gonna have our guns and we're gonna survive and we're gonna get our rights, <laughs> you know? So there's a shift here from a time of very effective intimidation through lynching, right? public displays of white terror against black bodies to a point where there's more covert ways. He talks about this of the bombings, secret assassinations, right? Megger is killed from afar, right? It's not this whole stringing up of people. It's this idea that we can't, we can't treat black folks like we used to treat them <laughs> because they ain't taking it anymore. <laughs> You know, and if I say that that's the only thing that the civil, I, mean, I think there are many gifts from the civil rights movement, and there are many issues that happen out of the civil rights movement. You know, patriarchy, homophobia is rampant, and uh, and misogyny. I would say that there's a lot of that has to do with how much they took from a patriarchal and um, and homophobic church, because <laughs> the church had so much to so much influence in the movement, and so we see a lot of that. Um, and the, what we can glean from it is this idea of, yeah, we're not afraid anymore. We're not afraid anymore. Collectively, we're not afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. And we have each other's backs, and we're willing to use our guns to, to show that, not just put food on the table, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't use the word courage lightly, you know, courage is not fe being fearless. It's, it's acting despite the fear. Mm. And that's what I believe, that we have this radical courage that is displayed by ordinary people um, on a regular basis. And the presence, of the, the presence of SNCC and CORE and those young activists there 
is a display of intergenerational uh, respect and work that is, is, I, have, I don't know if I've seen mm-hmm. it to that depth um, since. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of SNCC, there's this uh, quote that I really like that's at the beginning of chapter four, the I wasn't chapter being nonviolent. So yeah. <laughs> the, the quote is by Worth Long, an S, uh, a SNCC uh, field secretary, and Worth says, now you can pray with them or pray for them, mm-hmm. but if they kill you in the meantime, you are not going to be an effective organizer. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, yes, right. damn. Um, so that's what's so interesting, right, is that you have the – we're still going to be an effective organizer, so we're going to arm ourselves so we stay alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's the insistence, there's the defiance that uh, this oppression will not define me or kill me, right? And then there's an insistence on staying alive yes. to organize. Right, right. Right? Not just staying alive. Right. Right? It's like we have work to do. We see something else. Mm-hmm in the future for ourselves and our children and what have you. So we, we, we're going to stay alive for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, when I read this book, there was one um, question that was a pretty big question that I was, I was grappling with not being able to, not really seeing it as my question to answer, but still being curious about what your answer might be. Um, and the question is just, how do you embed and organize to address what sometimes seems to be self-destruction within our communities while at the same time continuing to fight systemic oppression and white supremacy, right? So um, it's sort of a big question. um, And I'm wondering if just like, what are your initial thoughts on um, what Charles was referring to when he was talking about that, when he asked that question um, and um, how that is relative to, or how that could help us inform um, the current moment that we're in. Uh, I think what I hear in that question that I think about a lot um, is there is something very important about what Charles Cobb is, or what Charlie Cobb is teaching us, right? That is still very, very relevant. But what, what, what is the, um, how does this fit in the context of like of um, inner community violence, right? Of mass shootings that we're in, right? Where um, we still live in like the, one of the most violent societies in the world, uh, absolutely. And, the, and but. Uh, something I don't know if it, I mean things are always changing as well um but just what it what does this mean I'm thinking about like the young people I work with who are having to navigate a, a fear of guns coming from people who look like them mm-hmm. um and and how do we talk about you know imagining a world maybe without guns but still are respectful of of what you know Charlie Cobb is saying about you, you know the difference between community organizing and direct action and like you know we're trying to do community organizing with young people mm-hmm. who think that who uh, who have a very valid reason to uh, think about how they're going to defend themselves. It's a hard question, clearly. Um, f- for me now, I think, because I want to give the book its due, but I don't think that the content of the book around just understanding the role of armed self-defense um, versus a philosophy of nonviolence is really the point for me. Mm-hmm. So... For me, I was most, there were several things, but I was most moved by understanding what it meant to respect people where they are and the context in which they're in Mm -hmm. and to develop our strategies based on that understanding Mm. and to really go into any situation, particularly around organizing situations, community organizing, feeling like you know nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) until you know the people. 
So for me, that's the takeaway from Charlie Cobb's book is not that everybody needs a gun, right, to protect themselves because, of course, there's still white terror <laughs> happening, but it's in different ways, right? And, um, and that that same type of thinking behind armed self-defense is not going to necessarily protect one from the enemy within, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, the point is what, who, who are the people who are the young people, who are the older people, who are the people that we're trying to work with towards liberation? Mm-hmm. What is their true lived reality? And not go in with like, this was my story and I know this will be your story too. And you know, <laughs> and all you need is education and access and you're gonna be great, you know? No, what are the, what are the true, like every day, what are, they, what are they afraid of? What is keeping them from being able to have a li- liberatory thinking, mm-hmm. right? or to even self-identify as activists. The afterward, there were some problems for me in some of the things that, uh, ha- that, that uh, Charlie Cobb says in the afterward. And if I ever see him again, I would actually probably ask him about these things um, because he mentions this uh, violence in the, in the black communities. And he's even saying, um, you know, black leaders don't live in those communities anymore. At some point he says something like that. Um, they're not, they don't have proximity right to the people and um, I found that a little worrisome because I don't know what black leaders he's talking about if they're not living with or around or willing to even go into the communities in which uh, they want to work then are they leaders first of all (laughs) and then if if they are um, well I know that people are doing work in those communities right but is it the same kind of activist identity that that you had, right? As part of a national organization that had a strategy around um, around uh, black struggle, right? And I think about I'm thinking about a lot of things, <laughs> but the, I always feel like the civil rights movement was a human rights movement that was then defined as a civil rights movement because of the civil rights gains, right? Because of particularly, he mentions a lot, the 60, 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But the, the idea behind the work that's happening is, again, that black people could walk through the world with dignity and respect and have access to the promises of democracy under the US Constitution. That was the point. Whatever ways that needed to happen was the ways that needed to happen. It looked different in each community, right? And then even after you have Brown versus the Board of Education and the two Civil Rights Acts, you have massive white resentment that breeds even more violence, right? They shut down the pools to keep from integrating them even though it was the law of the land. They shut down the schools. Little Rock closed for a year after, you know, the Little Rock Nine desegregated it, right? Didn't integrate, desegregated it. So this idea that these laws, you know, everything was great after these laws were passed and the, the movement is a success because of that, is it's a hard scrabble, hard won success in that, in that case. And it's not, um, it reduces the power of the movement mm-hmm. again. So what does it mean to, to organize people with liberatory thinking and thought and really truly respect the lived realities they're, they're in and explore all the tools necessary to keep them alive, 
right? And to fight for the dignity, the, the, what they need in order to walk with dignity and respect. That's, that's how I see it. So I don't really feel like it's a, you know, the lesson there is more of that what we talk about a lot, meeting people where they are, mm-hmm. but also being super humble <laughs> about where we're coming from and a lot of the assumptions that we have about the communities in which we're trying to organize in. I think you're right in the sense that we it would be unfair to this book to apply it to, you know, something other than what it's trying to in, what it's intending on on doing right and correct me if I'm wrong but I think that I, to me this what this book did for me was it really is trying to uh, debunk the myth that the civil rights movement was was um, peace loving like everybody was just um, uh, taking taking their beatings or just like you know mm-hmm. accepting how it was and 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 you know like I, and and but it wasn't right because it was people were arming themselves and defending their livelihoods and their families um, because I, I, I see a lot of people utilizing like MLK and utilizing that whole like oh but they marched they didn't like they didn't shut down streets and get arrested and I was like yeah they did actually yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and and so I think that that's sort of what Charles is trying to show like look at there is yeah. history of armed resistance right and you yeah. can't you can't use the civil rights movement in that way like right. and, 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 and I, so that's a that's what I think that he's doing with this book and, mm-hmm. and how, do you, how I would utilize the work of this book mm-hmm. um he talks about yeah. bottom-up telling of history versus top-down mm-hmm. telling of history mm-hmm. um but even in that sense the whole um romanticizing of nonviolence often comes from from white people mm-hmm. right because they want there is love there's great love in armed self-defense there's love of oneself mm-hmm. in armed self-defense they're arguing for loving of them Right yeah. of of white people because they understand that anger could be very dangerous for them. Mm-hmm. Right, but there was a there was clearly um, never any kind of and Charlie Cobb talks about this never any um, directive to be retaliatory to have mm-hmm. retaliatory mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. Right, so this this idea of just having black people armed, period, to be a um, a threat to white people then or today is about them. Mm-hmm. It's not about our love. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's the, what they believe the demonstration of love to them would mean, mm-hmm. which is absolution, really. Right. right. And so to bring it to bring it back into the into yeah. the now, why why should an organizer or, or a cultural worker? Um, why should they read this book? Right. What 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 does this book offer to us as organizers um, in this political moment? Um, and what does it not offer? So I actually like took some notes on this because I feel like there's so many things, and we've talked about already the the role of nonviolence and the romanticizing of it, and there, so that they, any organizer who has a reverence for history, which I hope everybody does, even if it's not easy for them to access or the the time is not there to understand the importance and, and need to to know it from the bottom up is really important. Um, but because King subscribed to both a tactic and a philosophy of nonviolence, it has become a dominant narrative that is is inaccurate. So to know true history, right? This is why um, another aspect of some true history that they many of us have been denied is absolute reason. It's also I was thinking about this: the nonviolence tactic um, would not have been effective without um, black people being willing to arm to protect those families and young activists at night. So this idea of how, what is our commitment to protect each other? 
you know, we say this in the, the Sada quote all the time, right? We, we must love and support each other. We protect, we protect each other. I think it's in there. It's terrible. <laughs> I haven't said it in a while, but you know, it's in there, right? But what does that really mean? You know, what links will we go to to truly protect each other? And that means keeping each other safe and keeping each other alive, no matter who the killer is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whether it looks like us or not. Mm -hmm. So if, whether it's ourselves, like what do we really do to protect each other? And then what are we doing? I have this whole thing about what, it, what are we doing at night? Mm -hmm. So I have this, I'm, I'm always seeing people, I'm, I'm struck by the images of seeing people with their guns in their laps on their porches at night, you know, protecting their families from night riders. But also just every time I think about it, I, I just think about them at night. I don't know. The, the cover of your book, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like it's happening at night. And this thing about at night, right, both figuratively and literally, like what are we doing when nobody is watching, you know? What are we willing to do when nobody is paying attention if it's not a televised march mm -hmm. in the case of this, you know, in this era, or if it's not live tweeted, <laughs> or whatever, you know, what are we willing to do at night for each other? So I feel like this, to me, that's, that's a reason why we, to understand the courage and, and, and what, what all the activists that you know about, who they needed to protect them at night, who never got the light of day in a book, <laughs> right? Who never, their names were never um, said, and I truly believe that Charlie Cobb has gone to great lengths to tell us names we have not heard before in this book. And um, I, I'm grateful for that. I feel like he's given us a gift in that way. Um, but I don't think that they they asked for that. <laughs> you know, they were they were committed regardless. Um, I think about the new just making the history of the Black Freedom Movement. Um, nuanced and not so straightforward. No one should feel like they understand completely the civil rights <laughs> movement unless they've read like 20 books and they're all bottom up, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so they, this idea of those people, again, the people working at night, the ones, uh, they need to be acknowledged as leaders as well, even if we don't know their names. With the mass shootings that are in the news and also with the, the violence using assault weapons um, in our own communities or many of the communities that maybe I don't live in but my cousins live in and all you know um, we know that this is an imperialist country built on slavery and genocide right yeah. and the founding documents for the most part read timelessly but they weren't they weren't written to apply to everybody right but they are in direct contradiction to the policies and the ways that the country was created so at that time, they were actually writing documents that were in contradiction to what they were actually doing, <laughs> right? Um, so the aspects of the black freedom movement tend to appeal to, this, these particular aspects tend to appeal to a militaristic, a country that is built on, on military might and violence. So we appeal to the rhetoric of the documents in our voice and our and what we say and then sometimes when what we do we're appealing to the what was unsaid and what was actually happening at the time 
So I've been struggling a little bit around the, milita the military language we actually use around the struggle. Mm -hmm. When I go on um, tours, when we meet Catherine Burtz Brooks and Hollis Watkins, we always see when we go to Jackson and Charles McLaurin when we go to um, Mississippi Delta. You know what, I call them on my, on my itinerary, civil rights veterans, right? When you're in Selma, at the, um, the museum that the local people there have put together at the foot of the, foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge is dedicated to the foot soldiers, right? We use military language to, to describe our fight for freedom in this country. It's real deep to me. It's real deep because the country is deeply flawed. Mm. <laughs> and so we, we are appealing, you know, to our right to, to walk in, with dignity and respect in a country that's deeply flawed and built on these, um, on this imperialistic military language. It's, it's a real struggle for me, mm -hmm. you know. My mom went on a tour with me for the first time this year, and it was, it was great. <laughs> I didn't know how it was gonna go, but it went well. And, um, you know, she's so close to the history. She's so close, and she talked about hearing, um, she would hear a car backfire because I was playing, I do a freedom songs, a little freedom songs workshop when we're on the tour and I was playing music for the, for the participants and a lot of them are, we are soldiers in the army, we have to fight. I mean, this is all in it. It's in the church music that becomes the freedom songs, all of these things. And, she, and so I talk about black people being at war within this country and of course the book goes into this quite a bit of the role of veterans. Um, and the double yeah. V campaign, yeah. right? Yeah, coming back and saying, you know, I just fought for this country. Yeah. A couple things you need to know now. Uh, I deserve respect as a veteran, and I know how to fight now. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's real. Um, but my mom was, was, it took her back. She, like, she interrupted me and went into this zone where she was thinking about what it was like to live as a child during this time where bombs were being set off regularly. And she said that they would hear a car backfire and they would think, they would duck because they would think something was going to happen, right? So similar, right, mm -hmm. to what young people today feel like in their neighborhoods if they hear something mm -hmm. go off. But it, she said that and she said, it was like we were at war. She actually said that. So, you know, so yeah. we're, we're how do you dis divest <laughs> in it when you when you feel like you've been attacked? Yeah. A part of me, are you saying that we're not at war? Or are you saying that to get free, our struggle for freedom is separate from surviving the war that has been put on us? Does that make sense? That that because I, mm -hmm. I I guess I, I don't know if I'm I mean, I think I, I share it with you, and I'm struggling with the tension. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's, I do believe we're at war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I want to reject the language of war. Right. right. And the tools of it. And ha that's right. extremely difficult, right. you know? Um, I mean, I don't know. There's no winning a war, like, right? Like, there, mm. I, I, at least I don't. That's something that even I think this is where I like really love conversations with young like children, children, right? Mm -hmm. Like I remember being little and being like, I just I don't get what war is. Like just you're done and a bunch of people are dead. I don't get how anybody won that, right? Like yeah. So I under yeah. So I, I 
I can't imagine freedom means winning the war. That that doesn't make sense to yeah, me. Yeah, I don't think about it winning, really. Yeah. It's just about combat, yeah. I think. And so so that's what I'm looking for. Right. You know, other language to describe what's going on because there's definitely an enemy. Yeah. And there and and there are people on freedom side, you mm-hmm. know? And so what does that look like when attack is always a possibility and um emerging from one battle to another can leave us traumatized. What other language can we pull on to describe that state of being? So how do we do that? You know, how do we divest as a community? Right, right. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, the Black Panthers and how they get narrated as this very, you know, violent group, right, is how they were taught to me. Um, And... In, even in, in sort of like radical community, they're articulated as being sort of like extraordinarily militant. Um, and it's somehow different than than what was happening in the civil rights movement because they were carrying a gun. But if correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it actually follows the same tradition where the Panthers were, they weren't, they weren't, you know, the the sit-in. They weren't it wasn't like sit-ins, it wasn't like voter registration. They were doing community organizing. They were in that sort, they were maintaining that aspect of what was going on in the civil rights movement. And thus they did the same thing. They armed themselves in self-defense. Is that true? Is it am I reading that right? I mean I would agree. I I um I was looking for a passage <laughs> that would um that would affirm that, but I, I feel like just with the other readings and and research I've done on the on the movement, I feel like there's a very uh, seamless uh, transition for the Black Panthers. Um, I mean, from what we understand now as this Southern-based civil rights movement to um, a more urban uh, focus of, for community organizing that the, that the Panthers had. Now, this right to, to, to bear arms is something that they they start with. Mm-hmm. So it's not happening at night anymore. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still happening and unapologetically. Yeah. And I think that's the, the argument that Charlie Cobb makes too in the book is mm-hmm. that there wasn't a there wasn't a wasn't this conversation with local people in Mississippi that uh, you know we're so sorry we still have to keep our guns like they don't care what the organizers thought you know what I mean yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. you know what you're gonna do your little scrawny 20 year old over there if somebody comes over here what you gonna do right. you know <laughs> yeah. you better be yeah. glad I have a gun you know yeah. so there was never any shame shame in it mm-hmm. you know um and but again it's happening uh as, as part of a way of life there where the Black Panthers are like Yes, we absolutely need to protect our communities. This is only common sense, and we don't have to hide that. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is the, would be the only difference. Um, but the, the sentiment is the same, right? So I hate to say, but we are at time. And I, I just want to thank you so much, Mia, for, for joining us, um, for being our sponsor, for being our mentor, for being our friend, just for being so much to us. Um, but, uh, yeah, our, our brains are sort of exploding right now. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Any last thoughts before um, we tell you to read a passage? Oh, no, I was just looking for Oh, you were passage. looking for your passage. Okay, okay. Um, so, again, the book is um, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible by Charles E. Cobb, Jr. Um, it's an incredible book. It's very important. Um, it's printed by uh, Duke University Press. Um, and Mia, um, thank you so much. And we're going to have you uh, close out with your favorite passage. 
Okay, and just one little shout out for Duke. Um, Charlie Cobb worked at Duke this past two years on the SNCC Legacy Project. So definitely check that out. It's an incredible interactive online project. Yes. Have you seen it? It's so good, right? It's amazing. Check it out. It's an Oh, wow. Yeah. Whole other conversation about history and how to archive it. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Okay. So I like to read. I have the hard copy version signed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you love you love Charles The nation's blacks were becoming increasingly impatient for the rights that had been long denied them. In the years between the two world wars, black people were demanding desegregation and equal rights much more insistently than before the wars. They became even more intent on gaining full citizenship with all the rights that accompanied it. This was an affirmative demand, distinct from the protests about racial, racist practices and barbaric horrors like lynching that had dominated black concerns earlier in the century. Blacks no longer felt that they had to prove their worthiness. Rather, they were convinced that democracy was a human right and that participation in making the decisions that affected their lives was not a privilege to be earned, but a right guaranteed to them, along with, the, with all US citizens under the Constitution. And from the introduction, he says, a final caveat. In some respects, this book is a way to introduce readers to people and political currents that have never been particularly visible in the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Although their attitudes towards self-defense were certainly important, the larger story, more, even more ignored in the conventional narrative than our guns and self-defense, is the story of black communities organizing and fighting for change unwilling to live under white supremacy any longer. This is the story of lives and people at the grassroots. The story of guns in their hands simply commands your attention. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to the Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading! <laughs>